Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 74. Last week, I continued working my way through Exodus, in that episode covering the Ten Commandments, along with slavery and servitude. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm pushing through Exodus 21 and working all the way to chapter 24, using most of the episode to cover the concept of a sabbatical year. But this is the three-year anniversary of the podcast, and I do want to take some time at the end of it to recap the past 52 weeks. And with that, let's get started. The rest of Exodus 21 concerns laws about property and interactions between people. There's no real history here, but it does give a bit of insight into the treatment of slaves, such as putting an eye out or knocking out a tooth is forbidden. You can strike a slave with a rod, as long as there's no permanent injury. Children are not allowed any sort of bad behavior, and oxen seem to be prone to goring people. Also, if you dig a pit, be prepared to compensate your neighbor should their ox or donkey fall in and die. But on the bright side, you get to keep the dead animal, likely for food and hide. And that's it for chapter 21. Chapter 22 concerns more property law, theft of livestock, breaking and entering, and disputed property. We also get a peek into the civil and criminal justice system. Beginning in verse 7, it reads, from the New Revised Standard Version, When someone delivers to a neighbor money or goods for safekeeping, and they are stolen from the neighbor's house, then the thief, if caught, should pay double. If the thief is not caught, the owner of the house shall be brought before God to determine whether or not the owner had laid hands on the neighbor's goods. End quote. Now this is one place where the footnotes provide a bit of clarity. The text reads, The owner of the house shall be brought before God. But the footnote provides an alternate explanation as being brought before the judges. And that seems more workable on a practical day-to-day basis. And this is the system Jethro advised Moses to put into place. NIV simply states that the owner shall be brought before the judges, as does the King James. The second part of the chapter walks through more religious and social rules and regulations, to the point that verse 25 prohibits interest on loans. The next verse authorizes pawn shops, or at least their version, but prohibits clothing from being pawned. And that's a quick summary of chapter 23. 24 continues with more rules, judicial laws, and then the sabbatical year, which is a good topic for this week. The text begins in verse 10 and reads, For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the wild animals may eat. You shall do the same with your vineyard, and with your olive orchard, end quote. It's essentially a seven-year agricultural cycle and is even observed in modern Judaism, but in a much different form. The book of Leviticus in chapter 25 promises bountiful harvest to those who observe the year off 
and describes its observance as a test of religious faith. In this regard, Leviticus explains the concept in more depth than Exodus. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land that I am giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath for the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard, and gather in their yield. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your unpruned vine. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. You may eat what the land yields during its Sabbath. You, your male and female slaves, your hired and your bound laborers who live with you, for your livestock also, and for the wild animals in your land, all its yield shall be for food. End quote. Later in the same chapter, we're given a little more detail. You shall observe my statutes and faithfully keep my ordinances, so that you may live on the land securely. The land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and live on it securely. Should you ask, what shall we eat in the seventh year, if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will order my blessings for you in the sixth year, so that it will yield a crop for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating from the old crop until the ninth year, when its produce comes in. You shall eat the old. Then, in the next chapter, Leviticus 26, a warning. And you I will scatter among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword against you. Your land shall be a desolation, and your cities a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath years as long as it lies desolate. While you are in the land of your enemies, then the land shall rest, and enjoy its Sabbath years. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have a rest it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were living on it. End quote. Later in the Old Testament history, we see where Jeremiah condemns the people of Israel for ignoring the law. In chapter 34 of the book bearing his name, he wrote, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your ancestors when I brought them out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, saying, Every seventh year each of you must set free any Hebrews who have been sold to you and who have served you six years. You must set them free from your service. End quote. I touched on this in the last episode. Skipping ahead, we're told of the consequence of their failure to abide by the law. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by granting a release to your neighbors and friends. I am going to grant a release to you, says the Lord, a release to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. End quote. The warning in Leviticus and the fulfillment in Jeremiah. Circling back, in the seventh year, the land is left to lie fallow, in all agricultural activity, including plowing, planting, pruning, and harvesting, is forbidden. 
other things, such as watering, fertilizing, weeding, spraying, trimming, and mowing, may be performed, but only as preventative measures, and certainly not to improve the growth of trees or other plants. Fruits or herbs, which grow on their own, are considered ownerless and can therefore be picked by anyone. So, where do you draw the line in the seventh year? Rabbinic commentary thought that food could not be harvested in a normal manner, like with a sickle. But using your hands without a tool, like when you pluck a piece of fruit, was permitted. Modernly, in the nation of Israel, the rules are somewhat followed, but there are workarounds. Non-Jews in the land aren't expected to abide. Therefore, Arabs, Christians, etc. are allowed to harvest and the Jewish adherents can purchase food from them. Also, adherents can grow produce on land outside the traditional, read ancient, boundaries of Israel. Of course, our modern lifestyle presents other nuances to the interpretation of ancient laws. Some somewhat applicable to the ancients, others not so much. Produce gathered in the seventh year cannot be sold nor thrown in the garbage. The first because it's interpreted as being against the Mosaic Code, and the second because you would have expended excess energy, and it would seem you gathered more than necessary for your family. And this has led to rules concerning religious items produced from agricultural products, such as candles and wine. I'll spare you the specific interpretations, but just know a couple of things. Not everyone agrees, and there are always permutations, deviations, and unintended consequences. As for the wine produced in these years, it has to come from certified vineyards, otherwise it wouldn't be kosher. In a literal sense. New vines can't be planted, but grapes from existing vines can be harvested. But the grapes themselves along with the wine that comes from it, cannot be sold. Of course, when properly stored, wine keeps for decades. So you can always use any wine from the pre-sabbatical harvest during the sabbatical year. This, of course, was pointed out by God to Moses so long ago. Not to be forgotten, there's an additional biblical requirement and that's that the owner of the plot leave the fallow agricultural land accessible to all who wish to come in and harvest, to the point that if the land is fenced, gates must be left open. This includes private gardens and even outdoor potted plants, but anything indoors is exempt. That doesn't mean that a single person can come on your land and take everything. A person can only take enough to feed themselves and their immediate family. Finally, this rule, well, all of these, don't apply to greenhouses or hydroponics since these are disconnected from the earth, meaning soil, and they are indoors. Finally, debts between Hebrews, but excluding those owed by foreigners, were forgiven. As seen in Jeremiah, it appears the ancient Hebrews regularly ignored the overall directive, other ancient contemporary societies appear to have practiced similar years off. The Assyrians are thought to have had every fourth year off as part of their crop rotation practices. There's additional detail provided in Deuteronomy, 
including a reiteration of the forgiveness of debt. Other books, 2 Kings, Nehemiah, and 2 Chronicles, also contain references to the rules. And the structure of the sabbatical years and corresponding jubilees allow a relatively accurate dating of the history of ancient Israel. And please remember the use of the word relatively before writing and pointing out that some of the dates I'm about to walk through are disputed. And with that, more on the history. The Babylonian Talmud, a set of rabbinical writings from the first couple of centuries AD, records that in the era of the judges, legal events such as contracts or criminal cases were dated according to the Jubilee cycle, the sabbatical cycle within the Jubilee cycle, and the year within the sabbatical cycle. Think of it as being akin to book, chapter, and verse. Samaritans also apparently used this method of dating as late as the 14th century AD. It was then that an unknown editor of one of their writings recorded that he finished his work in the 61st Jubilee cycle since the entry into Canaan and in the fourth year of the fifth sabbatical of that cycle. If you assume that Jubilees were every 49 years instead of the alternate theory of 50 years, this places his writing 3,028 years after the entry into Canaan. Of course, if a jubilee were 50, not 49 years, it would date the entry into Canaan 61 years earlier, relying, of course, on the accuracy of his math. It's widely believed that the Israelites entered into Canaan in 1406 BC. This is based on a passage in 1 Kings in chapter 6, where King Solomon began to build the temple. The text tells us this was 480 years after the Exodus. A little quick math, assuming you know the year the temple was begun, lends you at 1406. And this would also mark the start of the ticking clock towards the first sabbatical and jubilee. Of course, not every seventh year of rest was noteworthy, but several were. Second Chronicles, in chapter 17, notes a public reading of the law, thought to have occurred in a sabbatical year, probably 872 B.C. It could also have been a jubilee year. The text records that it occurred during the reign of Jehoshaphat as the king of Judah. There's a mess of commentary concerning Jehoshaphat that I'll cover when I get specifically to his history in the history of Judah during that period. Deuteronomy chapter 31 requires that the law, specifically the Mosaic Code, be read to all of the people in the seventh year. The Mosaic Code is the accumulation of the 613 or so laws found in the first several books of the Old Testament. The general thought of Jewish and other Old Testament scholars is that this requirement was regularly ignored which would make sense, as it wouldn't have been noteworthy if it happened every seven years. The sabbatical occurring in 700-699 BC marked the withdrawal of the Assyrian army from Israel. Next, the law was read aloud to the people in Josiah's 18th year, thought to be 623 BC, and therefore a sabbatical and potentially a jubilee year. This is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 23. 
Josiah was the king of Judah at the time. 588 BC was when Jerusalem was in the middle of the siege by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, and the Israelites released their slaves. And a bit more about that event than I covered last week. The freeing of the slaves can be found in Jeremiah chapter 34. The text also indicates that this was due to the then centuries-old Mosaic law. There is a debate, though, if every slave was freed at the time, or if it was in the seventh anniversary of their individual enslavement. The passage in Jeremiah seems to indicate, at least in this instance, that they were all freed simultaneously. Of course, in this instance, it was only to reinter them later. Paging Jeremiah Like I've covered, and he foretold, Jerusalem would fall to the Babylonians the next year. And this event is not only found in Hebrew records, records we call the Old Testament, but also in the records of the Babylonians. Two sabbaticals later, in 574 BC, which was also potentially a jubilee year, Ezekiel had a vision of a restored temple. There's a bit of debate over the timing of this vision and if it was also a jubilee year. Some believe it was neither and may have been a period when the agricultural land was voluntarily left fallow, maybe due to environmental conditions. In case you're wondering, his prophecy occupies the last nine chapters of his book. And what did he see? Among other things, the Jews would be scattered to other countries. Check. Tyre, located in the modern country of Lebanon, would be attacked by many nations. That's ongoing. Egypt would never again rule over nations. Still true today. And the people of Israel would return to their own land. That's been seen a few times. More on this vision in a later episode. Moving along. Of course, what followed Ezekiel were the years of Babylonian captivity. And the calculation of the length of the captivity is worthy of an explanation. The first deportation was around 597 BC, another around 587, and a third sometime around 582 BC, and it lasted until the fall of Babylon to the Persians, specifically to the Persian king Cyrus the Great in 539 BC. So, for the sake of brevity, let's just say it lasted from the third deportation until then, about 42 years. And these 40-some-odd years were a certain break in the history of ancient Israel. Recall before then, the people mostly identified themselves by their tribes. Afterwards, they were a more homogenous group collectively referred to as Jewish. And with their return, the general assumption is that the calendar restarted at zero, sabbaticals and jubilees. There are modern researchers, along with historical writers, who have attempted to align events after the captivity with sabbaticals and jubilees. And they all have their supporters and critics. Which is true of anyone who posits a theory, and especially true in the arena of religious history. Events aligning with years off that have a bit of support include the remission of taxes by Alexander the Great in 331 BC, the siege of Beth Zor, led by Judah Maccabee, the murder of Simon the Hasmonean, 
in 135 BC. The beginning of the reign of Herod the Great and Herod capturing Jerusalem, of course assisted by Mark Antony. There's also the reading of the Mosaic Laws by Agrippa I in 41 AD. Agrippa was the last ruler titled King of Judah, and the destruction of Israel in the latter part of the sabbatical year of 56 AD. Finally, there are numerous artifacts, debt notes, tombstones, contracts, and the like that mention sabbatical years and allow historians to narrow down when these occurred. And that's it for sabbaticals. Now for the three-year anniversary recap. So, this is the 157th episode, which means the podcast, since it's weekly, and has published every week, just past its three-year anniversary. I won't say that I never expected to get this far, or that I did. Quite frankly, when I started, I didn't know what to expect. I've said that numerous times, and it's still true. I'll tell you one thing, though. I never expected that three years in, and I'd only be on the second book of the Bible. But there's so much in here that I really couldn't skip anything. I'm still hopeful that you found it gets better as it progresses. I'm certainly more comfortable in all aspects, from the research to the writing to the recording, editing, re-editing, and finally publishing. And in case you've missed it the other times I've mentioned it, this isn't my full-time job. Instead, I manage to work the podcast in around work and family obligations. The way my week goes typically, well, really, optimally, is reading and writing some on Monday and Tuesday, ramping up Wednesday and Thursday, then the first draft is completed sometime Saturday. Rereading and re-editing Saturday and Sunday, along with checking the pronunciation of all these ancient names and places. Overall, I aim for about 3,500 words, no more than 4,000. And, as an example, this episode is about 3,091 words. A little quick math shows that 150 episodes at 3,500 words is in the neighborhood of 550,000 words. That's roughly the same word count as War and Peace. Seriously. I even have a hard time fathoming that. If everything goes well, I'll record on Sunday afternoon. The first audio edit is Sunday, the second Monday, and the third and final is Tuesday. That's right, three separate audio edits. That's the most tedious and really the least rewarding part of the whole process. Imagine having to listen to yourself over and over again. Next, I'll write up the one-paragraph summary and the keywords and submit for publication Wednesday evening. And, as astute as all of my highly intelligent listeners are, I'm sure you notice that my weeks overlap. And they do. I'm pulling double duty writing and audio editing Monday through Wednesday. The necessity of good audio editing is something that surprised me. In order to get the sound consistent and of sufficient quality, there's about two to three hours of editing that needs to occur for a 25-minute episode. Overall, the process is an intense, non-stop, seven-day-a-week task. 
I travel about 50% of the time for work, and airplanes make for good riding, as long as it's not terribly bumpy and the laptop is fully charged. I've recorded at my house, in hotel rooms, in the back seat of my SUV, and even while visiting relatives. I've researched and written in more places than I can remember, and spent time in cars, on planes, the subway, and who knows where else editing the audio. And by the way, I'll tell you, when you carry a microphone on board an airplane in your carry-on baggage, TSA takes note. Now for a few interesting tidbits. As of the last episode, the podcast has been heard in 163 countries on six continents. Last year at this time, it was 128 countries. And it still hasn't been heard on Antarctica or Greenland. Which I know Greenland isn't a continent, but it is really large on a map. I haven't given up on getting at least one listener in both of those places. If only so the map looks more complete. But it also isn't extremely surprising that I've had no listeners in those two cold land masses, since few people live there. There are listeners in all 50 states and all but one Canadian territory. The only one missing is Nunavut. I'm not sure anyone really lives there. Great Britain and Australia are also home to many listeners. No surprise there, as the podcast is in English, and that's what they speak there, although not quite the same as my native tongue. In fact, about two months ago, the podcast briefly hit number one in Great Britain in the religion category, which shocked me. In fact, up until then, I never looked at the rankings. Someone had to contact me and tell me. That same week, it peaked at number five in the U.S. in the same category. Still shocking. I have no clue how the rankings are determined, and I rarely look, and I couldn't have been any more amazed than I was. Then, there are a few surprising places, like Iraq, Rwanda, Indonesia, Malaysia, Cuba, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and a surprising number of listeners in Saudi Arabia. So many places where Christianity is by far in the minority. It really speaks to the power of the internet. I end each episode with a request that you rate the podcast on iTunes. And you should really do this if you can give it four or five stars. I'm not kidding when I say the reviews help others to find the series. It really does. The quantity, ratings, and frequency of the ratings game the Apple logarithm and cause it to rise in search results. And the higher it is in search results, the more people who find it. It's all self-fulfilling. 581 of you have rated for an average of 5 stars. Wow and thanks. And that's it. If I had more time, I'd address several frequently asked questions. Perhaps I'll get to it in the next episode. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, 
Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.